Well, in the book of John, chapter 18, if you'll turn there quickly, and the message today, I continue the series on seeing Jesus. And um, John chapter 18 is one of the accounts of the events of the crucifixion of the Lord. The subject today is Behold the Man. Behold the Man. The traditional words, Eke homo, behold, see, look, see the man, uttered by Pilate. But I want to give you some background. Stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word together, please. John chapter 18. I'll begin in verse number 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again. It says again because Jesus was arrested in the garden, if you remember, of course, and then he was taken before the high priest. The high priest had no judicial or legal authority really to do anything with a prisoner. Jesus was taken before the high priest. The high priest sent him to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Pilate was the governing authority. He had legal authority to imprison Jesus, to pronounce a death sentence upon him because the Jews were basically an oppressed people living under Roman authority. And so Jesus goes there and stands before Pilate, the governor. Pilate interviews him and then sends him over to Herod when he finds out that he is from Galilee because Herod was a Jewish regional king. When the Bible says a king, don't think like the king of England. Think of a regional king like the king of the PD or the king of eastern South Carolina. That would have been about the area that Herod ruled over. But he had no real authority to pronounce a death sentence upon Jesus, which is what they were demanding, as you've just heard son. And so Herod didn't want anything to do with anything that controversial anyhow. In Luke, it says he just wanted to see Jesus. It was an object of curiosity. And he sends him back to Pilate. So he's arrested. He goes from the high priest to Pilate to Herod back to Pilate. Now, that's where we are when it says again here in verse 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Jesus and said unto him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 33, 34 now. Jesus said, sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of you, of me? Are you saying that because you want to know, or are you listening to the rumors of the Jewish authorities? Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you unto me. What hast thou done? Why are you here? What crime have you committed? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom, of course. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence or from here? Now, someday it will be. It'll be a physical, literal kingdom, but not yet. Pilate said to him, are you a king then? Jesus said basically, yes. That's what you say, yes. And here's one of the great statements of the New Testament. To this end or for this purpose or mission was I born and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. You know what he was saying? I'm the king of truth. I'm the king of truth. 
Verse 38, Pilate said, what is truth? Cynical as if he lived in our day. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. He went out on this balcony. It's pictured in all the pictures. And he said to them, I find no fault in this man at all. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Therefore, will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And they cried and said, No, not this man, but Barabbas, a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. They beat him again. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns. It was a mock thing. It was, it was ridicule. They put it on his head. And they put, it, put on him a purple robe. This is the second robe they put on him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. And Pilate went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know him, that I find no fault in him. Second time he said it. You're wanting me to crucify a man I don't believe is guilty. I find no fault in him. And then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. That's our text today. That's what I want to preach to you about. Behold the man. And when the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw it, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him and crucify him. But I find no fault in this man the third time. Go on and crucify him. I don't have the courage to stand up and defend him. It's not politically expedient for me that I create a riot here today, but I want you to know he's not guilty. I find no fault in him. And the Jews said, well, we're doing this because he made himself the son of God. He claimed to be the son of God. Thank you, and you may be seated. And so Jesus is returned to Pilate for the second time. And in an attempt to appease the crowd, he has Jesus flogged again. They put the crown of thorns down onto his brow put him in a purple robe, a mockery, because the officials wore, the kings wore purple robes. They smote him in the face. They struck him across his face. But you know, in spite of all that, here's the interesting thing. I read all the accounts of the crucifixion again this week to refresh my memory as to the details. Pilate appears to be visibly impressed with Jesus Christ. In fact, three different times he defends him. Crucify him, crucify him. The mob is saying, Pilate says, no, no, no. I find no fault in this man. And yet he did not have the courage of his convictions to defend the man that he knew to be innocent. I want you to notice verse 5. Circle those three words. Behold the man. Behold the man. Notice he didn't say a man. He didn't say this man. He uses the article, behold the man. You know, over and over in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, in fact, 25 times 
Jesus Christ refers to himself as the Son of Man. Not the Son of God, though he did that as well, but the Son of Man. What this is doing by calling him Behold the Man is an emphasis upon his humanity. It reminds us that the one we worship today, that one depicted up there on that screen, was a man. He had 10 fingers. He had 10 toes. He had a face. He had hair. He ate. He drank. He became weary. He got thirsty. He was tempted. He experienced life just like I do or like any normal man would experience life. He felt the same emotions. He went through the same temptations and trials. He felt the same things that we feel. He was a man. Behold the man. Now, when I think about God, it's harder for me to identify with God, God the Father. I mean, here we have someone who could make a furnace a thousand degrees hot set it out there in, fa- in space 90 million, year, or 90, 90 million miles away from the earth. They would create all the light and the life upon the earth. Here's the one who made all of that. It's hard for me to sort of get my mind about, around a being with that kind of power, with that kind of greatness. It's kind of hard for me to identify with one who can hang a moon up there 250,000 miles above our earth and it controls the tides. It's so powerful that it, control, it controls how high or how low the tides will be anywhere up on the earth. It's, that's difficult for me, but I can identify with a man. That's why Jesus came and he was made flesh so we could identify with him as people as human beings ourselves. As God, Jesus Christ created every drop of water that was on this planet. As a man, though, on the cross, he said, I thirst. As a man, he hung there and addressed God, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he didn't call him father in that place because he was taking our place He was representing each of us, and he refers to his Father as his God. I want you to notice that he is the sinless man, the sinless man. I pointed it out to you already in chapter 18, verse 38, chapter 19, 4, and 6. Three different times, Pilate is examining him and can find no fault in him. He expresses it to that mob gathered before him. Jesus Christ was the only perfect sinless man who ever lived. It's important you understand as a Christian that when the Bible says he was sinless, that's exactly what it means. You know, the qualification for the Passover lambs that the Jews killed every year was that the lamb be perfect. In fact, they took the lamb up, and for four days they observed that little Passover lamb to make sure there was not one blemish that that lamb would be the most perfect lamb in the flock before it was offered to God. Jesus Christ was the most perfect lamb in the flock. In fact, the whole flock of humanity, Jesus Christ, was the only man who could live 33 years and say, I never sinned one time. I never thought a vile or dirty thought. 
I never said a sinful word. I never did a deed that was evil. I never one time even had the motive of doing wrong. I always sought to please my heavenly father. He's the only man who could stand in front of a large crowd of people as he did in John chapter 8. And he looked at a crowd who were his enemies, who would have done anything to find a flaw in him. And here's what he said. Which of you can convince me of sin? Do you think I'd stand in front of this crowd and say, hey, who here could stand up and say, I know about a sin in Bill Uh-uh, no, not me. But Jesus Christ, the only man who could stand in front of a crowd, not of his, of his friends either, but of his enemies and say, which of you could stand up and convince me of one single sin or picadillo in my entire existence? He was the sinless man. Behold the man. He was the gentleman. He was the man who could deal with all kinds of issues and problems and people and then say, suffer the little children. Allow the little children to come to me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of God. And it says that he took the little children upon his lap and he blessed them. A gentleman, a man who said one day when his enemies were in hot pursuit of him, I didn't come to destroy, I came to save every single person. Oh, the gentleness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gospel song, and I love it, and it's called Gentle Shepherd. And it conveys the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ, though he had the power to calm the winds and create all kinds of miraculous things, that Jesus Christ was as gentle as a spring breeze, the gentle man. Behold the man. He was the sinless man. He was the gentle man. He was a unique man. Remind, I need to remind you again, as I often do here, that he was the God hyphen man. Not half God and half man, but fully God in all of his being but also fully man. Now, don't ask me to explain that. I can't do it, so we'll just save a lot of time, huh? Nobody can tell you how that happened except through the miracle, the virgin birth, where the Lord Jesus Christ was made a man through the virgin, through a miraculous supernatural birth and conception. And the Bible says he came to the earth that he was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. The word begotten is used about Jesus. And if you look up the derivation of that word, you know what the word begotten means? It means unique. God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son. You see, we're the sons of God by faith in Christ, but we're not his unique only begotten sons. He's on a different level, of course, than we would be. He was the gentle man. He's the unique man. He fed 5,000 people one day with a little boy's lunch. Hey, do you know what? That might be the greatest miracle of all. That might be greater than the giving of life to the dead. You know why? Now, people didn't know that until in our lifetimes or the last couple of hundred years maybe. What Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 with that little boy's lunch 
He created matter. He took five loaves, little biscuits, and two little fishes a little boy caught, and Jesus Christ multiplied matter. Well, the first law of thermodynamics that I remember from my chemistry class was what? That it's impossible to create or destroy matter in any ordinary chemical reaction. I passed that, I passed that test. You can't create matter. But he did because he was the unique son of God, God in human flesh. He walked on the water. He walked on the water. He healed the sick without any medicines. He did all of those things and then predicted future events. He said to his disciples five different times, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated by the elders and the scribes and the priests. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And even after it happened, they couldn't comprehend it. Where is he? They're looking for him. They can't comprehend that he is dead, but he's going to come back from the dead at the resurrection. So he did all of those things. He was unique. So Pilate says, behold the man. Look up here at this balcony where he stands with me. We just flogged him. We put this crown of thorns on him. We put this purple robe on him. Isn't that enough for you, you bloodthirsty folks? Isn't it enough? Behold him. I can find no fault in him. He's the sinless man. He's the gentle man. He's the unique man. He's the only man that people sang about 2,000 years later. Think about that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Mohammed. No, no. We have heard the jo joyful sound. Buddha saves. Buddha saves. Uh -uh. Jesus Christ is the only one that 2,000 years later, people sing about every single Sunday around this world because he's the only one who can save. Buddha and Mohammed, no disrespect, but they didn't shed their blood for anybody. But Jesus Christ is the man. Behold the man. Behold with me his friends that day. Luke chapter 7 said he was a friend of sinners, a friend of sinners. His disciples were all fishermen for the most part. One of them was a tax collector. You ever been around commercial fishermen? Man, they're rough. I mean, they have hair on their chest. They're tough, masculine figures, masculine men. And Jesus had this appeal to men, and he still does today if we present him right. We've emasculated him. We've made him into this figure that, you know, he wouldn't kill a fly. And so now we've taken away his masculinity, and we wonder why our churches don't have enough men in them in many cases. In fact, masculinity is under attack in America. Even social observers now are writing about what we're doing to our little boys. We're emasculating our little boys. We're making little sissy little limperists out of them because the way our culture views masculinity, we hear it put down every week. This week, we heard an internationally famous politician say that women didn't 
they don't vote for women because their husbands are standing in the voting booth with them, huh? And so masculinity is put down. Weakness in men is almost uh, exonerated in the culture that we live in. Well, Jesus was a man. If Jesus were here today, I don't know where he'd be. I've wondered, where would he be? He might be up in West Virginia with the coal miners. He might be out in Texas with those guys that work in the oil fields. They call them roughnecks. It's kind of where I think he would be. I don't think he'd be in Washington. He doesn't like swamps. (laughs) I don't think he'd be there. I think he'd be with the construction men. I think he would be with the military guys. I think he'd be with the farmers. I took a little trip yesterday, and I went to visit a farm, and I talked to some farmers. They gathered around me, and I chatted with them a few minutes. I like people like that. There's not any pretense there. It just... We're just who we are, preacher. Hands dirty, nails greasy. Just real men, masculine men. That's who Jesus was. Now, I understand he had, uh, he had women followers. I'm not putting down you ladies. Who's standing with, who is standing nearest to the cross when he dies? Mary, Mary Magdalene, Siloam, the other Mary we call her. Oh, yeah, there were women who followed him and loved him and loved him, and I'm saying that in the right way, too, by the way. We, we find him a masculine figure, the man. His friends are sinners. He goes to the temple and he speaks, but he leaves and he goes out and he's with the real people. Christianity was not meant to be cloistered. It was meant to be out there where people live and die and hurt and work and sweat, real people. Whether they were men or women, we always find him, though, among the lost. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 1 Timothy 1 and 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not people who try to earn salvation through a scrupulously moral life. He came to be with sinners. A little girl was named Edith. And she went to Sunday school and came home one day, and her mother said, what did they teach you in Sunday school, Edith? She says, they taught me that I'm going to eat with Jesus. Her mother said, they didn't teach you that, honey, in Sunday school, that you're going to eat with Jesus. Oh, yes, they did. They said, Jesus receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And little Edith thought they were talking about her. He was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of poor people. And so he spent his life with the poor. In fact, John was in prison, locked up and miserable, bread and water and they were mistreating him, getting ready to behead him, in fact. And John the Baptist sent word to Jesus, and John was dealing with some doubts in his mind. Are you really the Messiah, or should we look for another, was his question. Jesus told one of the disciples, go back to the prison and tell John that the, one of the evidences of me being the Messiah is that the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
an evidence that I'm the Messiah is that the poor. I'm not here just patronizing the wealthy and the highly educated, the poor, the people who struggle with life. He was their friend. But he was also the friend of the rich. It says about Joseph of Arimathea, who was the one man who stuck with him. Joseph had been on the council that had voted to kill him, and Joseph voted against the council. And in one of the most courageous acts in all of history, he went, I believe, probably by himself and went to Pilate and said, he's dead. I want to claim his body and give him a decent burial. And Pilate said to one of the soldiers, it, was he, is he really dead? Is he dead already? And the soldier says, he's dead. We've checked. Well, then you can have his body. And Joseph took the body. In the book of Matthew, it says it specifically. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a rich man, took down the body of Jesus, wrapped it in clean linen, and carried it to a tomb that he had prepared even for the occasion. So behold his friends. Who are his friends? They're the poor. They're the rich. Because anybody that will acknowledge that they're a sinner, Jesus Christ is their friend. I want you to also, though, behold his enemies right quickly. Behold his enemies. Who are his enemies? Who could possibly be the enemy of this man? Well, the religious leaders were. That makes me have a little fear and trembling. The Jewish religious leaders, the preachers, the scholars, the seminarians, they were outwardly moral, but they were self-righteous, so self-righteous. They despised the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how self-righteous and how hypocritical they were. You can't top this for hypocrisy. And none of us love or respect a hypocrite, do we? No matter who you are, atheist or fervent, true believer, everybody despises a hypocrite. If a guy says, this is what I am, then be that. But don't try to pretend you're something else. Well, these guys, they're standing there. And the reason... Pilate had to come on a balcony and address them is because they wouldn't come inside the judgment hall. Why would they not come inside the judgment hall? Because the Old Testament law said that if they entered into the home of a Gentile, they would be defiled, ceremonially, un ceremonially unfiled, and they would not be able then uh, within 24 hours to observe the Passover. So can you imagine? They're pleading with Pilate, screaming at Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And he has to come outside to address them because these hypocrites are calling for the crucifixion of a man, but they won't go inside a Gentile's house. Hypocrisy, self-righteousness of the highest order. And then they have to hurry and get him off the cross because they want to observe the Passover at 6 p.m., and he didn't die till three, so they only have three hours to prepare the body and transport it and get him off of the cross so they can, in fact, observe the Passover. And so who were his enemies? The religious, self-righteous, 
moral religious crowd. Who were his enemies? Pilate. This despicable coward. This craven politician who has no principle, no convictions. Three times he says he's an innocent man. I find no fault in him. And yet, rather than standing up for Jesus Christ, knowing he's innocent, what does he do? He turns him over to them for that violent death. Behold the man. Behold his friends. Behold his enemies. Behold his cross. Behold his cross. You know, this time of year, um, we turn to the cross because... It's dark, it's foreboding, it's a downer. If I were a feel-good preacher, I wouldn't preach like I do on the cross. But the cross is the heart of our faith. I either have to preach on the dark side of Christianity, or I've got to omit it and not give you the truth. But I'm like Paul the Apostle. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross. Paul said, the only thing I glory in, not my apostleship, not my education, not my affluence, not that God has singled me out to use me to write half the books in the New Testament. No, none of the above. I glory only in the cross because it's the only thing that will get me to heaven. I want you to know about the cross that was voluntary. Jesus is not a martyr who was caught up by a mob of people and the authorities wouldn't defend him and he was carried away. In John chapter 10, he said, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down on myself. Nobody's capable of taking my life from me. I give it voluntarily. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He said to them one day, I could call an, a legion of angels. Do you know what a legion is? Between five and 6,000. I could call 6,000 angels if I wanted to come and deliver me. But I can't be delivered. I must voluntarily give my life a sacrifice for humanity. That's why I came. Do you know what, what one angel can do? Read the book of Second uh, Samuel. One angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Think of what 6,000 of them could do. Jesus said, no, I'm not defending myself. This is what I must do for humanity to be saved. The cross was a voluntary death of Jesus. Secondly, the cross was a cruel death. The Bible's a cruel book, very frankly. It offends some people who are overly sensitive and politically correct today. In fact, you only have to read three chapters deep into it and the killing starts. Man kills his brother. And all the way through, there's blood on virtually every page. A violent book, a cruel book. It goes all the way to three chapters from the back. Three chapters in and three chapters from the back, the killing stops. 
1,189 chapters and all but six of them deal with violence, hatred, sin, killing. It's a dark book in that sense. Although what it ultimately reveals is the brightest hope, the only hope, in fact, we have today in our hearts. Cruel book. It was more, uh, the cross was more than an execution. The cross was a form of torture. It was devised to torture people in public in order that it would strike fear into the hearts of the populace and be a preventive from people carrying out their crimes. And so everything that could possibly be done to make it cruel and inhumane, the Romans had devised it as an art, if you will. So his cross was voluntary. His cross was cruel. His cross was also substitutionary. This is the heart of it. Preacher, you say that a lot. Yeah, I say it a lot because people don't get it. They don't seem to understand this. That when he died, he was dying in my place. And if he paid for my sins, then I don't have to. But people don't get that. They don't get that. In those six hours upon the cross, hear me. If you haven't heard any, if you've been asleep until, until now, wake up. In those six hours on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered all the hell that you and I would have to suffer for eternity if we rejected him. That's the cross. It's God compressed all of eternity into six hours. And Christ was the substitute. There's a statement I've used before, and it's a little bit complex if you're not really following and thinking. Do we have a little thinking capacity left here today? I know it's Sunday, it's the off day, and you don't want to work hard, but I want you to look at this statement and think about it deeply with me. Jesus being infinite, infinite means without limits, suffered in a finite period. Finite means with limits. So Jesus being infinite, God, suffered in a finite period of time, six hours, what you and I, being finite, limited, would suffer in an infinite period of time all of eternity. I wish I was smart enough to have come up with that. That came from Adrian Rogers, one of his books. What a statement. I've never heard anything that said it so well. Because people say, how could one man die for the sins of the whole world? And how could one man in six hours pay the penalty of sin for all of humanity? Well, it depends on who that man is. Jesus, being infinite, suffered in a finite six-hour period of time what you and I, being limited, would have to suffer in an indefinite or infinite period of time when he died on the cross. and Therefore, he could pay for all the sins of all of humanity. Isn't that wonderful today, folks? My, so it's a dark picture, but what hope. Here he is, the light of the world hanging in the darkness, paying for my sin. It was not just his physical sufferings that redeemed us. 
You remember at 12 o'clock that day, God veiled the sun. Man, we've had people trying to look for, we've had people going back and studying every historical record. That must have been some sort of eclipse. You don't have to explain the Bible and try to defend the Bible with some sort of human evidence. The Bible says that God brought that darkness on that day. He clothed that Calvary scene with absolute darkness. As Jesus Christ battled the powers of darkness, Satan and his demons. And in those six hours, Jesus won back, listen to me, he won back for us everything we had lost in the fall. What Adam cost us, Jesus brought it all back to us today. My, my, what a scene. And so he hangs there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he hangs, forsaken of God, in the darkness, deserted by man, alone. But ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, he'll never go back to that cross again. Once and for all, forever and ever, he bought my redemption on the cross. He bought my soul through his death on Calvary. Every sin, every blot, every blemish that ever stained my soul, Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. And then the last words from his lips, it's finished. He didn't say it's finished. He used a Greek term, to telestai. It's what they wrote on a, on a receipt when the receipt had been paid. You come and pay me for some goods you've purchased from me. You take the goods, and I write you a receipt and hand it to you, and it says, it's all paid. Jesus said to Talestai, it's all paid. The charges against every man and every woman, I've paid them for you today. This week, I talked to someone. I shared the gospel with that person. And they said to me, in essence, this, Pastor, I don't want to be like those other Christians I see, so many of them. Uh, they say they're Christians, but they curse just like I curse. They laugh at dirty jokes just like I laugh at dirty jokes. They, they do things that Christians are not supposed to do, and yet they go to church. And I just don't know if I want to make that decision and receive Christ until I know that I can live it. Now, let me tell you something. Look up here. Don't miss this. If you wait till you can live it, you will perish in eternity. You can't live it. There hadn't been a day I've ever lived as the pastor of this church when I lived good enough to go to heaven on my own merits. Let me repeat that. There's never been in one day that I've lived in my entire ministry life that would have earned the favor of God and allowed me to go to heaven. Not one day. If you wait for that, you'll never get saved. And why are you waiting for that? When Jesus said, I paid it all. I paid it all. You know what? That's the basis of assurance. I said to you last week in the message, I say it to you again. A truly saved person 
can never go to hell because his sin was transferred to Jesus on the cross. This is the only part of the country I've ever been in where a lot of Baptists don't believe in eternal security, which lets me know if they don't believe in eternal security, they don't really understand the plan of salvation. They think there's something they must do. Pastor, if I do that, I'll lose my salvation. Why will you lose your salvation? Jesus has already paid for all your sin. Well, if I believed that, I'd go out and live any way I wanted. Well, if you think that, then you need to be saved. Because Christians don't do that. But I want you to get it. A truly saved person, you don't have to go around worrying about whether you're going to go to hell or not. Jesus has already paid for all your sins. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for Bill's transgressions. He was bruised for his iniquity. The chastisement and punishment of Bill's sins was placed upon him. And with his stripes, say it with me, we are healed. 1 Peter 2 and 24, who his own self bear our sins in his body on the cross. God put all our sin and load upon him. Let me tell you something. I say it to you again. If you should wind up in hell, and God forbid nobody that ever heard me preach goes there, but if it were to happen, it will not be because of anything you did. It won't be because you had an abortion or killed somebody. It won't be because you cursed and swore or got drunk every other weekend or ran around on your husband or wife. Am I giving you permission to do that? Absolutely not. You know better than that. But if you go to hell, it will not be because of anything you did. It'll be for one reason. John chapter 16 and verse 9 When he is come, he will convict the world of sin, of the sin of that they believe not. There's one reason people perish in hell. They reject the cure. They will not receive the Savior. Don't you reject it today. And as a Christian, what does a message like this mean to a Christian? Oh, it means I love him with all my heart. It means if he did all that for me, if I had a thousand tongues, I'd let him speak for him. If I had a thousand feet, I'd put him on the road to heaven today. And I'd serve him and live for him. I'd love him. I'd be more loyal to him him than I am my wife or my kids because even they didn't do for me what he did for me. And if you don't know him today, why would you not come right now? Why would you play Russian roulette with your soul and gamble with it? I want you.